Welcome to our gym Bible study on this uh, beautiful uh, July morning. A lot of rain, some great thunderstorms coming through our area. We do have handouts over uh, on the bleachers if anyone is interested. And we continue our study in Luke. So definitely a, a welcome to you who are here in the gym. A welcome to all those listening on AM850, KFUO, and worldwide on KFUO.org. Uh, we continue in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 21. And we're going to have a little brief section of Luke 10 before uh, we get into a probably maybe the most well-known parable in the Bible. Uh, and yet, because it's a parable that's so well-known, there can be a lot of uh, assumptions, perhaps, that we make about it that doesn't always um, fit, actually, with what the text is saying. But first, let's not get ahead of ourselves and go to the Good Samaritan. Let's start with uh, Luke 10, verse 21, where we read, Jesus, uh, In that same hour... He, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said... Now, I want to pause for a second. Uh, and I've said this probably a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred more times. Uh, if you read, the start of a reading begins, and then, or on that day, or on the following day, or in this case, during that same hour, what is it a good idea to go back and do before you continue reading? See what just had happened. Exactly right, Versa. Just go back a little bit and see what had just happened. And that was the return of the 72, the 72 that Jesus had sent out. And they returned to him, and they say to him, uh, that even the demons are subject in your name, Lord. And Jesus says to the 72, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so now we get to Jesus' response to them returning, and he rejoices. We have the 72 coming back, and he instructs them to rejoice, but he himself rejoices. And he says uh, that I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Uh, it's interesting, this is not the first time Jesus makes some, a, a comment like this, and it won't be the last time either. Uh, after all, there is an aspect of the gospel proclamation that comes first to the lowliest, first to those who the world perhaps would uh, not expect it to come to. You know, you think about the coming of the promised Messiah, who should be, by the world standards, the first to recognize this. The experts, the, well, the Jews, yeah, the ex, specifically the experts in the scriptures, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, as we'll read in the Good Samaritan, the lawyers or the experts in the law. And yet who is the first group to whom the gospel proclamation is given? We've got to go way back. It's in Luke. You go way back. The shepherds, Luke chapter 2, Right? That was not anyone's first choice, second choice, third choice, fourth choice as to who they would have expected to have that gospel proclamation revealed to. And here it's the same sort of thing. Jesus says that he rejoices that it's not the wise and the understanding, but rather the children. And in those days, uh, to be a child was not a, not, did not mean you had very good standing. What are the disciples' first reaction when children come to Jesus? 
Get away. He doesn't have time for you. You're not worthy of his time. And you see this wonderful reversal of status where Jesus rejoices here in Luke 10 that it's not those who are well-learned. It's not those who can recite every commandment by heart, can give you the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy by memory. No, it is children. And so then it begs the question, so is he referring to his disciples at this point as children? Maybe. Um, but also it could be a, a just a purely literal kind of statement that I rejoice that the, the littlest, the weakest, the lowliest, you have allowed this gospel to be known. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, if you were like me and spent any time in Houston the last uh, week or so at the National Youth Gathering, you see those words, all things, and you circle it about a thousand times. Uh, the theme of the gathering this last year, or this past week, I should say, not last year. <laughs> um, and I'm still running a little bit on fumes, so if I get a little rambly, it's, forgive me, no, it's just pure sleep deprivation. Um, we'll recover in time. Uh, but the theme of this year's gathering was that Christ is in all things and that he holds all things together. And so uh, it's very appropriate, at least for me, when I read all things, to think immediately back to those verses from Colossians chapter 1. And, and we're not going to look at them uh, today, namely because uh, it's the sermon text for next weekend for our National Youth Gathering Sunday. But if you want to just make a little circle and put, look up, you know, Colossians 1 and circle all things, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about, that uh, Jesus holds all things together. And here he makes a direct statement of this, that all things have been handed over to him by his Father. Now, what do you think here that he's referring to, that all things have been handed over to him? All right, there's, there's the, the obvious answer, which is, well, everything, right? But ponder it for just a minute, given the context. Remember, this is in the same hour. In the same hour that the 72 returned, Jesus rejoices that all things have been handed over to him. What sort of specificity might he be referring to here? Salvation, okay. That's good. Yeah, power over demons. Power over the things of this world, the darkness of Satan. And ultimately, that is salvation, as, as Versa pointed out, right? That this is a life-giving proclamation that he gives to those disciples. After all, why should they rejoice? Not because they can hold it over the servants, or servants, sorry, serpents. I'm going to do that a few times today, I promise. Uh, serpents. But why? Why are they to rejoice? Verse 20. Their names are written in heaven. So all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now what verse, or what maybe more famous passage does this kind of sound like? I see someone mouthing it in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right from John. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Uh, and here we have a very direct uh, statement by Jesus that uh, faith is a gift. No one knows Christ without that gift of faith. A gift not in ourselves, but a gift from God. A gift revealed to us by God. And then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Again, not to spend too much time in John, but I, I'm reminded of John 8 when Jesus says, um, when they wonder, is this guy a, a demon? Or ironically today, as you'll see in a couple minutes, a Samaritan maybe, which would be worse than having a demon. Um, he says, your, fa your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Right? That Jesus here is telling his disciples, you are blessed because you are seeing and hearing the very things that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the promise of the one who would come and not only restore God's people, but reconcile them back to God. The one who would put an end to Satan. Uh, and you are blessed to hear and see such things. And the disciples remembered this, not always perfectly, but if you look at 1 John, the way John starts his first epistle, he begins by saying, we proclaim to you the very things that our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, you know, our hands have touched, and perhaps, given on, you know, depending on the day, maybe even what our noses have smelled. <laughs> but the idea is that like, this is not some story we're passing along, but this is what we are witnesses to. And here Jesus tells those disciples privately, you're blessed that you get to see these things. Now, they don't know at this point that it's not always going to be so sunshine and roses and they're going to go out and just be able to uh, always have things go their way. You know, at this point, it seems like a pretty good deal to be a disciple of Jesus. Get sent out, cast out demons, people receive you, and then you get to go back and say, that was awesome. <laughs> well, that will change pretty quickly <laughs> for those disciples uh, in terms of how maybe they feel how uh, blessed or easy it is to hear and see the things that God has designed for them uniquely to see and proclaim to the world. So then we get to what we're going to spend the most time on this morning. Uh, and it's a parable that I probably don't need to read to you, but I'm going to read it in its entirety first because I think it's good to not section it out too much yet and just think about the context, think about uh, when this narrative is being said, who, to whom this parable is being given to, uh, and then start to think of, okay, where do I fit in to this parable? Uh, but more importantly, where does Jesus fit into this parable? So we start at Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said to Jesus, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The reason why I wanted to go through that in its entirety is because it's important before just focusing on priest, Levite, Samaritan, caring for your neighbor. What is really the question that's at the heart of what this lawyer asked? So we, we're going to go back to verse 25, where behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So he wants to see what Jesus' answer is to what saves us. What Jesus says one must do to have eternal life. Now, a lawyer does not necessarily mean he's getting up in courtrooms with wigs and, or in front of a judge. What is a lawyer in these days? What is meant by lawyer, I should say? Knows the law and the scriptures. Yes, absolutely. He is a religious legal expert. And so when we're talking about the law here, what law are we talking about? Are we talking about Roman law? No, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Torah. And so you have this lawyer, this expert in the religious law, likely a priest of some kind or, a, or someone who works in the temple, someone who knows his stuff. And he thinks, all right, I'm going to take this guy on and see what he says, because I know what the law says. This guy seems to be preaching something that seems to go, at times, even contrary to what we are teaching, the experts of the law. Who is he to commission these folks? Who is he to, to proclaim these things? And so he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I love how Jesus responds. There's a couple times where he does this, right? One of them's when they give him a coin and says, who does this belong to? You know, he says, well, you answer, the, you answer your question. You want to put me to the test? I'm going to have you answer your question first, and then let's look at it. So he says to this expert of the religious law, well, what's written in the law? Mr. Fancy Pants Lawyer, how do you read it? And the legal expert, the religious, the, the lawyer, knows what the answer should be. And he goes to scriptural answers. I want to be clear here. He doesn't go off the reservation. He answers very scripturally. That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, where are those located in scripture? Well, the law. So let's turn all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6,
And starting at verse 4, this is what's known as the Great Shema in, uh, for those in that day, the Jewish leaders, uh, because it starts with the word Shema here, Shema Yisrael, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And on these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is a go-to answer. Every kid in, uh, you know, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, as they start entering the temple, start seeing the faith life of a, a, a synagogue in those days, would know the great Shema, would know that this is the go-to answer. This is the Sunday school answer. Um, but then he also adds one more thing to it. And that's from the book of Leviticus. So now we have to go to Leviticus chapter 19. And if you go to Leviticus 19, and start, let's start at verse 17. 18 is really where the verse, the quote, is going to come from, but the context of it is good. Um, and you can even look before that. Actually, you know what? Let's do that. Let's go to verse 13. We'll start at verse 13, and then see what the context of that famous phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, is um, in the instruction of the Lord. So starting at Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall, not, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this lawyer gives a pretty good answer. You know, sometimes we can be so quick to harp on the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the lawyers as, you know, how could they be so blind? Here, this is exactly, everyone would have been nodding. Okay, okay, this is a great start. And so, uh, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Well done. Go do it, and you will live. Do this, and you'll have eternal life. Now, what is the big problem with the lawyer's answer and Jesus' response? Okay, he's narrowing down it to, you know, who's your neighbor? But namely in our own lives, I mean, this, this is a good instruction for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is the problem with that instruction in our life? You can't do it. So what does the lawyer think when Jesus says, do this exactly and you will live. You'll have eternal life. ruh -roh. That's not so easy. It's not as simple as just love your neighbor, Jesus. <laughs> and so then we get to what causes Jesus to speak in this parable. For the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
You know, it's interesting here. There's two parts to the lawyer's answer. What's the first part? I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time on this, so let's make sure we're clear. What's the first part of the lawyer's answer to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Second part, love your neighbor as yourself. What is he worried about he's not able to do? Neighbor, which means he thinks he's what with God? All good. And you start to see just how (laughs) uh, sort of warped a works righteousness perspective can make you when you're thinking, I've done it all. I've lived this righteous life before God. God and I are just fine. I wonder, I don't know, we, we can only speculate, but I wonder what parable Jesus might have went with if he said, well, so how do I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind? But he doesn't even ask that question. He thinks he's got that understood. He thinks he's got it covered. He thinks he's doing that. And so you can see there's a little bit of ignorance just immediately in what he's concerned with. But then he does ask this question, so who is my neighbor. And Jesus replies in this famous parable that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I want to make note here, and I make note of this because this was like the one question I got wrong on my Greek exam, my Greek final at the seminary. Um, You always go down from Jerusalem and you go up to Jerusalem. So if you leave Jerusalem, you go down. I'll never forget it because I got it wrong. when you go to Jerusalem, you go up. So the man, when it says he's going down from Jerusalem, it's just a, a turn of phrase. It's how it always operates uh, in Greek, that you go up to Jerusalem, and when you leave, you go down from Jerusalem. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And in the Greek, that half dead is quite literally half with dead connected to it. So they're, you know, they're not mincing words here. Jesus is not saying, yeah, this guy was in rough shape. You know, he got beat up by a bully. No, he is basically on life support, half dead. And if you've ever been, I have not been to Israel, but I have seen pictures. You know, the scene that you're thinking about is, you know, how do robbers fall upon him? How does he fall upon robbers? Well, in those days, the roads, there's all these rocky cliffs and enclaves and Uh, The the closest thing that I can compare it to, if you've never been to Israel or seen pictures of it, would be uh, like something out of Star Wars where, you know, the planet Tatooine, there's all those robbers that jump out of the cliffs. That's kind of what would happen. You had a a little nooks and crannies and hiding spots. And so someone could be going along the road and all of a sudden, boom. Uh, And so he fell upon robbers. They beat him, took his stuff, departed, and left him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, it's interesting here that it was by chance. Jesus is saying this wasn't planned. And why that's interesting is because I think that's going to tie in closely um, with how we are to take this parable. Now, there's kind of two main interpretations that we're going to cover at the end of it. Uh, And it changes who the Good Samaritan is. And I actually think that there's some... uh, things that we can take from both of those, and I'll give you what my opinion is of it. Um, But by chance means that this priest just came upon it. He wasn't out going along. He had somewhere else to go. 
He wasn't going down the road seeking who he could help, which is fine. He had, a, you know, he had stuff to do. We don't drive down the road, down Manchester, waiting for a car to be pulled over to the side of the road for us to help. No, we usually are going somewhere. And so when he saw him, that is the, the man who had been beaten and stripped and left half dead, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, that is a temple worker, uh, when he came to the place and saw him, Pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Really, so there's three different responses. It seems like there's two different responses, but I, there's really three different responses here. The first is that, that first priest, and he just kind of passes by, and I, I call this one it's kind of the ignorance is bliss sort of response. He passes by, sees the man, but doesn't look too closely, doesn't kind of stop, just kind of, all right, I'm going to scoot over and go on the other side of the road and just, you know, kind of keep my head in the sand. Um, the Levite, though, it says he came to the place, meaning he stopped where the man was. He got to that spot, looked down, and, and the intent here is that it's supposed to be a little bit, I would say, a degree worse than what the priest did. <laughs> you know, the priest kind of ignorance is bliss sort of attitude. The Levite stops, sees where the man, the state he's in, and goes, Nah, not going to help. And goes down the road. And then the third response comes from that Samaritan. The one so often we call the good Samaritan. And he comes by and came to where this man was, very similar to the Levite, looks at him, and what is his response? He has compassion. Now, I'm going to say this now, and this is going to lend itself to one of the two major interpretations of this parable. That word compassion like that, um, it only occurs in the New Testament as something that God has for his people. God being Jesus. Jesus has this compassion, the same word. It does not occur um, in any other context in the New Testament. So that's going to give you a clue as to what one of those two interpretations might be. He has compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, bandaging them up, doing what he knew of how to do in that day, um, the, you know, the closest thing they had to antiseptic. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So immediately, what do you notice about this good Samaritan? Outside of compassion, what are some of the, the things that he does out of compassion? He helps. What, what's, what's another thing that he does? Well, yeah, he will eventually pay for all his expenses, but even immediately, by pouring oil and wine... Setting him on his own animal, what is he willing to do first and foremost for this man? Make sure he's taken care of. Okay, Bruce. He gets his hands dirty, yes. Yeah. Dave, did you have a... Yeah. He's willing to use his own stuff. You notice it doesn't say that there was oil and wine just sitting there. No, he uses his own oil and wine. 
which he would have had need for. He's journeying, right? Probably pretty tired, and yet where does he set the man? On his donkey. Now, again, we don't know, you know, it's a parable, so you've got to be careful not to add too many details that aren't there. But to bind up someone's wounds, to bound them up, what did he probably have to do? You know, we've all seen it, you know, a movie or something like that where there's a scene and, and someone gets injured or hurt and someone rushes to the rescue. And what do they do in order to, to triage the wound? They tear their shirt, their cloak, some sort of fabric, right? In order to bind it up, bandage it. So immediately you have this good Samaritan, the Samaritan man, willing to put his own uh, things to the use of his neighbor. You know, he didn't ask the man, hey, do you have any uh, spare cloaks I can use to bandage you up? Uh, did they happen to leave you any oil and wine that I could use to help you? No. Take mine. Use mine. And this will continue once he gets to the end, but I want to highlight that this is immediate. That he takes on his own, or he takes his own uh, resources, you could say, and he cares for this man of his own accord. And so he sets him on his animal, takes him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now that is a profound statement when you think about it. Not only has this guy helped, not only does this guy pay for at least one night, not only is this guy giving two denarii, which could cover a few more nights, maybe even a week or more, until this man recovers. But he says, when I return, I will pay you whatever further debt this man incurs for his care. What might we expect, or what might the world expect the response to be? You know, he did a good deed with the two denarii. But who might the world think should probably start paying for his own care once he gets back up on his feet? Yeah, himself, the man who was beaten, right? Uh, you know, once he gets back up onto his feet, okay, you know, he, this Samaritan's done a lot already, taking uh, great care of him already. There is no obligation to continue paying his debts. And yet, he does not hesitate and says, no, whatever further uh, you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so which of these three, Jesus asks the lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, what do you notice about how Jesus frames the term neighbor? What is it, what is it founded in here? The care they showed to another? What is it not tied to? Maybe I'll start with that. What is being a neighbor not tied to in the Good Samaritan? Their role in society? That's one. And there's another big one that is not tied to. That I think we often fall prey to. Where's the Samaritan from? Samaria. He's not local. He, it's not about location. 
That's not about your, your societal status, because Samaritans were not seen of very highly. If anything, a Samaritan would be the one that you'd expect to pass by on the other side because of the conflict that so often occurred. But it doesn't matter your ethnicity, your societal status, even your means. We don't read that he was of much means. This might have been his, only, his last bit of oil and wine. It may have been all that he could pay at that moment, those two denarii. Yes, Dave. It was just a man, that's right. So the comment was made that the, the three people who interact with the man who was robbed, um, you hear about their backgrounds, but the man who's robbed is just a, a man. It doesn't say if he's a, a Samaritan man, a Jewish man, a, a Roman man, a Roman citizen. It's just a man. And I think there's an intentionality there. You're not supposed to ask that question, right? You're not supposed to ask, ask all right, you know, wait, who did that man vote for before I care for him? Who, does that man agree with how I think? What ethnicity is he? What societal status is he? What level of education does he have? Those aren't questions that are supposed to enter our mind when we think about caring for our neighbor. And so I think it's very intentional that he's as anonymous and as nondescript as possible. Did you have a question? That's a great comment, that it, it goes beyond just um, pain, but even care for the innkeeper, that the in, he doesn't want the innkeeper to incur this, this debt um, that he will incur by taking care of him. And so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So it's not about societal status. <laughs> Being a neighbor is not about location here, but being a neighbor is about action. In a sense, Jesus turns the idea of neighbor into a verb. Be neighboring. Go neighbor. Go neighbor somebody. I've never heard that preach. Go neighbor somebody. But really, that's kind of the point Jesus is making here in the Good Samaritan. Uh, when you don't ask the question, who is my neighbor, just go neighbor. After all, how did these people come across this man? Because they were thinking ahead of time, hey, that's my neighbor, I should care for him. No, it is by chance. And it's a great reminder that uh, we don't know who God's going to place in our lives. We actually don't know who our neighbor's going to be. Our job is not to try and determine that beforehand. Our job as Christians is to go and neighbor. But I also want to be clear here, and we'll get to this, I said there's two main interpretations, and you've heard me kind of flip-flopping between both of them, whether or not you realize it or not. Uh, and so Jesus, uh, or the lawyer says to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus says to this lawyer, you go and do likewise. First, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that he can't even call him a Samaritan. He's not even willing to admit the Samaritan man. That's a much easier answer, right? He can't admit that. 
No, he begrudgingly admits the one who showed him mercy. And again, like I said, Jesus turns neighboring into a verb for this man. You go and do likewise. You go and show mercy. You go and show compassion. So now we get to the end of this parable, one that is known even in secular circles. You walk around and you ask someone, what's it mean to be a good Samaritan? And what comes out of their mouth? Doing for others. Now, I want to be very clear. Doing for others is great. Serving others, serving those in our community, serving just those you come across at schnooks, helping them, you know, get something from the top shelf or if someone's like me and height challenged and doesn't have a very long reach. Um, I can still reach the top shelf, I just want to be clear. <laughs> but uh, who is the good Samaritan? And, yeah, oh, there we go, Rahema. She was on it. Uh, yeah. Is the Good Samaritan you? No. And this is where there's two interpretations. I will say I fall, I tend to uh, more closely align with the one that said, no, the Good Samaritan's Jesus. Uh, there's lots of contextual clues that point to that. Again, that word compassion is only used in the Old Testament to refer to how God acts towards his people, not how we act towards one another. Um, but also, when you think about it, who is left half dead, practically dead? Us, we were dead in our transgressions, Paul says, right? And who comes into that ditch? Yes, Don. Jesus, okay. So the comment's made that he's heard that it's Jesus putting us in the church. The inn is the church. That's interesting. I don't, I'd have to think more on that. Um, and I'm still sleep deprived from the youth gathering, so I'm not going to go too far into that today. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that, yeah. That's a that's a. I'll have to look more into that. That's a good comment. Right. But who comes to us in that ditch? Who comes to us on the road? Who comes to us as we're beaten and half dead in our sin and takes it upon himself to clothe us with his own righteousness? Heal the wounds that we have. Pour out himself for us. Pay the debt for us. And again, any good Lutheran Bible study can quickly go to Romans. I'm trying to avoid that temptation, but I am reminded that in Romans, Paul talks about uh, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. That word credited, logizomai, in Greek, that's a financial term. You know, it means to be uh, given a credit by someone else. That we are credited on account of Christ with his righteousness. It is put into our account. Just like that, those denarii were put into the account of that man, Christ credits us with his own righteousness. We are credited with Christ's righteousness. And so, you know, the first, I would say, that the interpretation I, I align more closely to, and there's debate, so don't hear me saying if you, you want to disagree with me, that's okay. Um, there's a lot of debate on this. You can read numerous and numerous uh, articles, thousands and thousands of pages of, of commentators from the early church through Luther into the modern day who will debate this parable. <laughs> Who's who? Right? But when you think about the one who comes and rescues basically the dead and brings them back to life, restores them back to life, there's one answer for that. And it's not you and I. 
It's Jesus. Now the second major interpretation. This lawyer doesn't know how to go and love others. Right? And so he is instructed, just like the rich young fool is instructed, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Jesus goes after the idol of his heart and says, you don't, you know, and we don't know who maybe he didn't like. Perhaps it was Samaritans. Maybe he really had an issue with Samaritans. And this parable really cut him to the core. Uh, but Jesus goes after that idol of his heart and says, no, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind means you go out and neighbor. You go out and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and is that true? Should we do that? Yes. And so where do I think the answer lies in this parable? Well, I think uh, there's probably benefit of both interpretations, and intentionally so. That we are supposed to heed the instructions of Jesus. If we're too concerned with making sure we only work for our neighbors, <laughs> uh, you're going to end up generally just serving those who can serve you back. If you go out and think, today's my day to neighbor, and you don't worry about who it is, uh, it's amazing who God can bring into your life. It's amazing who can, you can come across on a given day and have no idea <laughs> that you are going to have that interaction on a given day. But it does take us being a little self-sacrificial, not just being so caught in the bridle of our own bubble, our own things to do. I mean, we all have a to-do list that's way too long for the hours in a day. Um, it, it, causes, it forces us to take a step back and think, okay, how can I be attuned to where God maybe might be using me? today, instead of just, what do I need to get done? And I'm as guilty of that as anyone. I mean, I've got a little uh, whiteboard in my office, I call it the Get Stuff Done Board, I'll make a list, and I, have, I like crossing those things off. Um, and yet, there's some of that unpredictability, some of, that, some of the, uh, those experiences that you could never have imagined that God intends for us to have, to be diligent and look out for um, where we can neighbor. Not who is our neighbor, but where we can neighbor. Um, but again, we are not saved. That man, uh, the lawyer, was not saved if he went out and did that perfectly. Who is he saved by? Jesus and Jesus alone. And so in that respect, um, we are to read the Good Samaritan in, in a little bit of a different light as well. Remembering that it's Jesus who came to us half dead. <laughs> we who were half dead. And he himself died in order to give to us the life that he won for us on the cross. Uh, and confirmed on, the, on Easter Sunday. Can't ever talk about Good Friday without making sure we mention Easter, right? All right, so now we get to what the actual gospel lesson for today is. And it, this worked out wonderfully. We did not plan this. It just, we started this study last summer, so we didn't have you know, this date particularly in mind. It just worked out this way. But these little, uh, the little five verses after the Good Samaritan uh, with Martha and Mary are the gospel text for today. So I'm going to again read them quickly and then, um, actually before I do that, are there any questions or any just final thoughts on the Good Samaritan? Yes, Paul. Yep. Yes. Right? 
Yeah, so the, the comment was made for those listening on, on the radio that uh, that uh, reference I made earlier to the rich young ruler when Jesus says, go and sell all that you have to the poor and come follow me. Uh, the, his reaction is he is saddened by this and he goes away disheartened, right? And that's where Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. The comment was made, though, we don't know the reaction here. We aren't given the, well, how'd the lawyer react? Um, and... You know, in some ways, that, again, that's probably intentional. It's not about how the lawyer responded to it. It's about remembering what Jesus does for us and who God calls us to be. Um, that Jesus is that good Samaritan for us, and yet God also calls us to go and be neighbors. <laughs> yes, Don. Yep. Fine line. Yeah. Uh, so the comment was made, you know, that where this really can be somewhat difficult is, you know, the people you might run into um, that are asking for help perhaps on, on a street corner or, you know, run into someone who's, you know, can you spare a couple bucks? And, and the, the conflict, and I mean, I'll just say it, some of the conflict is, you know, if we could guarantee they were going to use that money for food or gas, um, I think we all would be more uh, apt to want to uh, be generous with them. And that's why maybe it's good to carry things like gas cards. I know as a, as a church, I'll just say, we do have um, gift cards to food places, uh, gas cards, um, and we'll, we'll even, if you know, someone needs to get somewhere, or says, you know, I need money for a train ticket, um, buy them the train ticket and give it to them. Uh, and I, you know, again, these are specialized circumstances. These are just things I've experienced over the last you know, uh, two years or so, or even going back to Vicarage. Uh, but maybe that's where you can be more intentional about having some of the things that you can direct so that that, is, that assistance, because we are called to help. But of course the conflict becomes, well, I don't want to fund you know, something that will actually be harmful to that individual. Um, if there's an addiction involved or you know, some other sort of vice. And, and that creates a conflict. Uh, and to answer that conflict, I'd say, go neighbor. And you're going to say, well, what does that mean? And I'm just going to say, go neighbor. And you're going to say, but give me the answer. And I'm just going to say, go neighbor. <laughs> um, you know, and, and when we take that attitude, you know, God does give us discernment and wisdom in situations. And so um, that's where we should not, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all. Each situation is unique. And, and we need to understand that. Um, yes, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the one who showed mercy. Yeah, so the comment was made, did the, the, the expert in the law really get what Jesus was kind of going at here? And again, we don't know because we don't know his response outside of he at least can identify the one who showed mercy. Um, and this brings out a point I didn't say, but that I, I should have. Uh, what, what's his question here? It's a question on the word of God. Well, who should know the word of God better than a priest and a Levite? You know, who should know what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? Who should know the scriptures of Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself better than a priest and a Levite? You know? Uh, an expert in the law, yeah. But even the priest and the Levite, they would know uh, the Torah, the law of God in the sense that to go and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they do not. The Samaritan, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't. 
And again, that's kind of Jesus' point. It's not about the, the, uh, your academic standing, your social standing, even uh, in those days, your religious standing. Neighboring is a verb. Uh, it doesn't really ask the question, who is my neighbor? It just kind of operates. Yeah. All right. All right, let's get on to Martha and Mary. Um, and if, it's what the sermon's on today, so hopefully if you're at 8 o'clock, this isn't too redundant. And if you're at 1045, this doesn't spoil anything for you. Um, but starting at verse 38, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I don't know if you put this uh, together before, but how does Jesus follow up the parable of the Good Samaritan? What's the next account in Luke's gospel? An account where Jesus tells one of the sisters, stop serving. Perhaps that's supposed to help our interpretation of who that Good Samaritan is and how we're supposed to take it. Um, right? And this is not, and I will say this account is not a statement of saying, uh, Martha is bad. What, what's the issue here? What's the conflict here amongst these two si- sisters? Is it just one's lazy and one's uh, a busybody? What's the conflict here that's existing between these two? Priority? Yes, it does. Are the guests really in need? Yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand because you remember Luke uh, 7 few uh, weeks prior, Jesus chastises the, the Pharisee for not serving him, washing his feet, that the, the woman of the city, as they uh, call her, came and anointed his feet with oil and with perfume and, and with her hair, and says that she showed him love. Now Martha's doing her best, you know, Martha Stewart impersonation, and she's being told Slow down. Uh, one of the things that are... Yep, we have a question. Yes. So the comment was made, he's not telling Martha to stop serving or even to slow down, but that what Mary's doing is not wrong, is good. Uh, and here's where that, whoever said priority, I think that was Raham, I think this is really at the heart of it. Are, what's, what's Martha missing? What is Martha missing in this moment? The reason why she's serving, and even, I would argue, the peace of God's message to her. What does Jesus say is, is the issue? Martha, Martha, you are anxious. You're troubled by many things. And you can picture it, right? You've ever hosted a party or, or had people over and, you know, someone starts showing up early and then it seems to pile on and then the dog's barking and you got to get coats hung up and the, you know, the casserole's burning and you're running all over the place. Uh, how apt are you to be like, oh, not at all. Your household's anything like mine. You or your spouse might be yelling at the other. 
right? In love, in love. But you can picture, you know, this is not something that's foreign to us. You can picture how frazzled and scrambled she must have been, and she is missing on hearing Jesus' teaching. You know, uh, this is a temptation that could even happen to, say, pastors. If you're so focused on what's coming next in the service, just imagine this. You know, it's a good idea to know what's coming next. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't think you guys appreciate it. If I got up there and said, hey, give me a second. I got to flip to the page of the bulletin, you know. If you get so focused on what's coming next that you actually miss what you yourself may be reading, what have you messed up? Your priorities. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, so the comment was made that during Advent, this happened to one of those in the Bible study, where they were preparing all these things, cookies, baking, doing all the preparations, uh, and that this verse really spoke to them. And yeah, it's absolutely true. And I think Christmas is kind of the low-hanging fruit for a lot of people with this, right? Because everyone in their mind has that perfect Christmas. You know, the decorations, we're all, we all fall into that, right? You know, it's the Griswold family Christmas. We all want that moment where it all comes together and the, the lights turn on and it looks perfect, you know? Uh, we, we don't like so much the part where we're reminded we're family, which means we have to suffer through this together. <laughs> uh, but with Christmas, we can get so caught up in all those decorations, all the, the family stuff, all the preparation, all the planning, um, you know, get everything perfect, and even, dare I say, sometimes skip what we're actually celebrating. Um, and so I would say Christmas is definitely one where we can, we can take that attitude. Um, uh, certainly other days as well, something like Thanksgiving. <laughs> All right. I joke Thanksgiving is a football holiday. It, it's not actually. Uh, I wish it was, but it's not. Uh, Right? It's a day of thanksgiving, to give thanks and praise to God. And there are other holidays that we can just go on down the, on, down the list. Um, and even certain celebrations. What about wedding anniversaries? How often do we maybe get so caught up in making sure it's all perfect that we forget to remember what God has given to us in that gift of marriage? And so it's anything that might distract us away from the realities of what God has given to us. Uh, and that's the anxiety and the trouble that Martha had in that moment um, that really... I'm sure, I am sure she did not respond to his comment to this in the most God-pleasing way. I'm just going to say that. Because uh, I know I wouldn't have. If I was running all around, got stuff on the grill, got stuff here, got this, and, and I needed help, and someone was just sitting there chit-chatting, and I was like, and I said, what, come on, help. And the person's like, nope, she's doing the good thing. I would not have exactly responded like, oh, okay. Uh, but Jesus reminds us that our priorities uh, center on him first on the Word of God first. Uh, and it's amazing when you do that how things fall into place. Instead of the opposite, where we scramble so much to get the things to fall into place that they end up come crashing down around us. Uh, so we are at time. Are there any last questions before we wrap up for today? All right. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Or Dave, did you have a question? Or were you... 
Yeah. Yeah. That, that, this is a great comment. This is a great comment to end on. The Good Samaritan emphasized services, or service, I should say, and then immediately following this account that seems to emphasize kind of not service. Here's where I would answer that question. Whose service does the Good Samaritan focus on? And I would say it's God's service to us. Um, and, you know, that's, as you heard in the sermon, I'm not trying to steal from Pastor Thomas' sermon, but he talks about in the sermon, the divine service is not that we are serving God, but that the divine God is serving us, bringing to us his gifts of word and sacrament. Um, so, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would allow us to go and neighbor, that we would be joyful in that pursuit, but that we would rest uh, at peace knowing that you, Lord, have come to us who were dead in our transgressions and have given us the great gift of eternal life, sparing not even your own Son in order to bring to us gifts that we did not deserve. I pray that you would guide us and keep us this week according to your word and your will, and that in all things we give glory and praise to your holy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.